0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are uh, on Friday. We had uh, just about um, twenty minutes or so to look at the cross, and I want to continue that that look at Philippians chapter two. So, if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Philippians chapter two. If you don't have a Bible handy, there should be one in the pew, um, in the sleeve in front of you. Um, those of you who are in the back rows. And um, I want to look at Philippians 2 again in verses 5 to 11, but I really want to zero in on verses 9 to 11, because in, those, uh, in that section, we pick up um, the resurrection. And uh, so let me just read all the verses, because they form kind of a condensed unit. Paul writes in Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, Moses records for us the scene that we know familiarly. More, most familiarly, as the Tower of Babel. But Moses records mankind mankind's prideful self-sufficiency as it reaches an apex uh, in man's plan to build a city and a tower uh, that they describe as that will reach to the top of heaven in hopes of making a name for themselves. And in verse 7 of Genesis 11, uh, Moses records that as a result of their God-like declaration that whatever they that they could do whatever they wanted to do and they could do it in their own capacity, um, God supernaturally confused man's language so that they wouldn't and could not understand one another's speech. God's judgment on their hubris wasn't hail fire and brimstone coming down from the sky like we see in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't a foreign adversary conquering them. And, uh, and raising the whole project to the ground like we see in Israel later on in the divided kingdom, God's judgment on them simply made it impossible for different groups of people to communicate in any meaningful way. And the result was they scattered, and the whole project came to uh, a screeching halt. The system collapsed. And in some ways, over the past um, couple of decades, the world we live in is kind of going through its own Tower of Babel moment, if you will. Um, one, uh, one cultural commentator mentioned in a recent essay, he said, the story of Babel is the best metaphor, he said, I have found for what has happened to us and for the fractured world we now inhabit. Something, he said, went terribly wrong, and it did so very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language, recognize the same truth, We are cut off from one another and from the past. He says, we are a people wandering amidst the ruins, unable to communicate, condemned, he said, to mutual incomprehension. Now, this is inevitable in a world that is cursed by sin. Uh, Man's heart is corrupt to the core. And and even the very creation itself, Romans 8 tells us, groans under the weight of sin. Uh, sin's curse. Paul says in Romans 1, despite the overwhelming evidence for God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, nevertheless, every human being by default, he said, suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And we see that. We see that in our world even today. The mutual incomprehension that we experience in our culture it doesn't simply impact our understanding of God in a general sense. It doesn't just uh, in- impact our understanding of creation. It extends with devastating consequences to Jesus himself. Rebellious sinners, as we all are, in defiance of a holy God, wander the earth in utter confusion and refuse to to admit what God has clearly demonstrated and made plain to us in the testimony of his word. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 13, verse 13, when his disciples ask, why did he teach them in parables? Why did he use these these stories to sort of obscure his, his truth? He says, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus himself confirms that his speaking to them in parables was in some sense a judgment on their unbelief, and their, and it, their judgment was one of incomprehension and inability to see uh, what is truly there and to hear while they hear with their ears they do not understand. And apart from the grace of God, that's all of us. We're all in that boat. We all will pridefully wander through life incomprehending not comprehending that which is plain before us, all the way into everlasting judgment. We cannot and we will not acknowledge the truth that our text teaches us this morning, and that is the inescapable reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. We said on Friday evening that this, these verses form the great parabola of Scripture, there's there's a sweeping arc to these verses. And in it, Paul leads us through what could be one of the most significant portions of the Scripture on the Lord Jesus that you will ever come across. It begins with Jesus' eternal existence with the Father and the Holy Spirit in heavenly glory. It transports us from heaven to earth through his incarnation. And then it leads us to the foot of the cross in verse 8, only to carry us back to the throne room of God, in Christ's exaltation as Lord of heaven and earth, and in this section, Paul employs all this rich, poetic, and theologically loaded language to glorify Christ, and at the same time, to challenge us as Christians to walk in humility and and, and to live with a lowliness of mind. When and it begins in verses six and seven, when Christ enjoyed perfect fellowship. And glory with the Father and the Spirit, which was rightfully His, which He had had from all eternity, and yet we see in verses six and seven He did not consider or reckon or regard that equality with God with all of its prerogatives and privileges and rightful glory. He didn't look at all of that as to consist in something of grasping, clinging, or seizing. No, He says rather equality, His equality with God, was found. Uh, in its truest expression, when he emptied himself and poured himself out for others. Beginning, again, with Christ's fellowship with the Father, we're reminded that everything about his salvation work was the exact opposite of selfishness and empty conceit. He's both God, Jesus is both God and truly man, and by his very nature gives of what he has in fullness to enrich others. He's the Son of God who gives, but his giving wasn't completed simply by his coming. That's what we saw on Friday evening, but by his dying in the place of sinners. As we said earlier, if we think about verses five to eleven as kind of a a sweeping parabola, then point uh, verse eight is the lowest point in the curve. Jesus isn't just the Son of God who gives; he is the Son of Man, verse eight, who serves. And that service finds its deepest expression in his giving his life as a ransom for many. He humbled himself. He was found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself. Everything that you looked at at him seemed normal. He seemed like a person, a human being, because he was indeed true humanity as well as truly God. Some looked and listened to him and saw Jesus the Messiah. Most looked at him and scoffed, seeing They didn't truly see and hearing. They didn't truly hear. He was reviled, 1 Peter 2.23 says, and yet while being reviled, he reviled not in return, but instead he humbled himself. This is what Jesus does. And to what degree did he humble himself? To what depth did his humility reach? His self-abasement, we said, bottomed out in his humiliation and death at the cross. He was humiliated by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' death was the ultimate act of obedience to the Father's will. It took him all the way to the point of death. But it wasn't just any death. We said on Friday evening, it was a death that was horrific. It was death, even death on a cross, Paul writes. It was physically excruciating, devastatingly shameful, utterly accursed way to die, that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, would suffer such um, such a humiliating death is incomprehensible to our natural instincts. And yet, the cross is where the one equal with God has most fully revealed to us the truth about who he is and that he is love. We ended last Friday evening, or on Friday evening, with that before us. His death was for us because he loved us. In this is love, 1 John 4, 10 says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to bear the wrath or be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the one who has uh, set aside his glory for you, who loved you and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is condescension in the greatest to the greatest degree sacrifice to the greatest degree, humility to the furthest extreme. Now, if that were all Jesus did, if he went to the cross and died, uh, if that were all there were to tell, it would be a moving testimony, but it would not be different than many other men and women through history who have died uh, as martyrs and suffered unjustly. What makes the gospel of Jesus Christ, good and glorious, is not just that Jesus died, but that he died for our sins and is alive today, that he has risen from the grave. We don't worship a crucified Messiah, we worship a risen Savior. So Christ's humiliation that we saw in verses 6, 7, and 8, gives way in verses 9 to 11, which is our text for this morning, in Christ's exaltation. And that's the biblical pattern that we see over and over and over again. Um, Jesus himself affirms this, and the New Testament tells us that it is first humiliation, then exaltation. Jesus says in Matthew 18 and verse 4, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So first humiliation, then exaltation. Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Or in Luke 18, in verse 14, he says, I tell you this, he says that man, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the pattern and you see, the natural man wants; we want all the exalt, all the exaltation, without any of the humiliation. But the scriptures tell us that it works the other way around. There can be no exaltation in God's economy without humiliation, lowliness. As we're going to see in our text, there can be no crown without the cross. And that's what we want to consider for a few moments this morning. God is the Son; Jesus is the Son of God who gives verse 8, we saw on Friday, he is the son of man who serves. But as we come to verses 9 to 11 this morning, we're on the upslope, and we're going to see that Jesus is the risen Savior who reigns. He is the risen Savior who reigns. And we can break this text down into two, essentially two parts. We see Christ's coronation in verse 9, and we see in verses 10 and 11, Christ's consummation of all things. So verse 9 is his coronation, and verses 10 and 11, Christ's consummation of all things. Verse 9 says this, For this reason also, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. If you look at verse 9, just the very beginning of it, you'll see this little introductory phrase, for this reason also. It connects what Paul's saying here in verses 9, 10, and 11 to what he's already said in verses 6, 7, and 8. That's why we say it's, this is a parabola. Every point connects very seamlessly to the next, from one thought to the next. We've seen Christ's condescension, we've seen his humiliation in verse 8, and now we come to his exaltation. It all, it all comes together. In this passage, because he came down from heaven to earth, because he emptied himself, taking the nature of a slave, because he suffered and bled and died on a humiliating death upon a cross, therefore now God has exalted him. This, as we said earlier, is the biblical pattern. First humiliation and lowliness, then exaltation and this isn't, just, this isn't just some kind of pattern we see repeated throughout the scriptures. It's, it's a fulfillment of God's word spoken in ages past through his prophetic messengers. Even in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 verse 15, this, this kind of seed of the gospel that is planted there by the Lord as he says that the seed of the woman would ultimately rise up and crush the head of the serpent. 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, shows that the Son of David, the Messiah, would eventually establish an everlasting throne and kingdom. And so we see the exaltation of the Son even in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse verse 1 The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is exaltation after humiliation. Even Zechariah the prophet says in chapter 9 verse 10 that Messiah will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is exaltation. That is absolute ruling and reigning. Isaiah says in chapter 9 verse 6 that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. This is the picture. We could go to Micah, we could look at Jeremiah, we could look at Ezekiel and so many others, and yet they all point to the same reality that Christ's exaltation has to come to pass. It has to be this way. Just as his condescension and his humiliation were necessary, so also is his exaltation. What Paul says here is important in verse 9. It's important. This word, highly exalted, is a compound form in the original language and is used only here in the New Testament. God the Father has highly exalted Jesus. Paul uses this term in a superlative way. He, he, he says, he's speaking of highest quality. It's not comparative, it's, it's superlative. He's not saying Jesus was rewarded being given a higher position than he had before his incarnation. And he's not emphasizing, as some have speculated, his triumph over his enemies of sin and death and so forth, which is sometimes how this this word, this prefixed word, can be understood. What he means here is that God has exalted Jesus to the highest possible degree. He has highly exalted him. We do this in English. We do the same thing in English with the prefix over in we add that to a word, like we are overjoyed, or we are overburdened, or um, this is my, where I get into trouble. It's a little overkill. I'll hear that term sometimes when I'm goofing around. It's overkill, right? It has the idea of superlative. It's just too much of this, too much of that. God the Father, he says, has elevated Jesus in the most glorious way. He raised him to the highest, loftiest of heights. And alongside that, Paul says, God has bestowed on him the name which is above every name. These two phrases really need to be understood together. They go together. The Father has wholeheartedly granted to Jesus the name. Not merely a name. He has granted him the name which excels that of every creature in the universe. God invested Jesus with the name. Speaks of authority, speaks of uh, character that far excels all others. Do believers go to heaven? Yeah, our mediator, Jesus, Hebrews uh, 4, verse 14 says, has passed through the heavens. Do you and I have the expectation of being uh, raised to heavenly glory one day? Yeah. Well, Hebrews 7, 26 says, Jesus was exalted high above the heavens. Will you and I ascend to God when we exit this world if we're in Christ? Hebrews 4.10 says he has ascended far above all the heavens. Do you hear the, 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 the language there is superlative? The point Paul is making is this. Jesus has been exalted to the highest possible degree. His exaltation is orders of magnitude greater than anything you and I would ever experience, even in the grace of God. Why is that? You know why is he exalted, highly exalted, as the text says? Well, because of the magnitude of his humility, the magnitude of his condescension, the magnitude of his humiliation, and therefore there must be a magnitude that is commensurate with his uh, in his exaltation. Christ's exaltation, which of course encompasses his resurrection and ascension as well, Christ's exaltation is the Father stamping his. Yes, to the Son's sacrifice, his emptying himself and humbling himself in obedience to the point of death. Our Lord now holds the title deed to the universe. It is all his, and he rules all things as Lord of heaven and earth and as the head of his church. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says this, And he, the Father, put all things in subjection under the Son, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ now holds the title deed to all things by his resurrection. Jesus' coronation that we see spelled out here in verse 9 is the complete reversal of his humiliation. Everything that it was in verses 6, 7, and 8 has now been reversed. He who stood condemned under the law because of our sin has been vindicated. He who made himself poor has been made rich. He who was rejected has been accepted. Can there be any doubt as to why, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority has been given me in heaven and in earth? And for what purpose? has the Father done this? The Father has highly exalted him, bestowing on him the name which is above every name. Why has the Father done this? And that leads us to the second point that we need to see in verses 10 and 11, where we see Christ's, Christ's consummation. Not only has he been incarnated as king, but we see Christ's consummation of all things in verses 10 and 11. He says he's done this so that At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Verse 10 shows us the aim or the purpose of Christ's exaltation. It's given to us in two phrases. Paul quotes these phrases. Uh, Part of this is a quotation from Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 45. And so I think it would be prudent for us just to consider that for a moment, to pick up the context so we understand well, why, why does Paul grab this Old Testament text and how does that relate to Jesus? If you look with me at Isaiah 45 and uh, beginning in verse 18, we see it says, For thus says the Lord, the prophet says, Who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. He says, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together, these, those who worship idols. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. So what we see here is this string of divine proclamations. The Lord God, Yahweh, is declared to be God alone. He's over all the created things, therefore he stands over all other gods, false gods, idols in worship. He's Israel's savior, he says, whom they can truly trust. And then he says this in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and I will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. In verses 22, 23, in the beginning part of verse 24, Yahweh extends an invitation of salvation to all humanity. And that obviously is received by some. Now, some will receive that invitation to salvation, is trusting in him, and worship and honor him for all eternity. That's obvious. But he also, this these verses point out that it's also obvious that when he says all will bow the knee, that also includes those who have not trusted in God. That's why he declares, to me, every knee shall bow. You see, this text points out that God is not just worshipped and acknowledged by his own children, but in the end, Those who even have refused to worship and live for him will also bow the knee. The passage then underscores that all creation will one day give honor and worship to the Lord at the end of the age. It looks ahead. It looks ahead to the future when all things will be completed. When God's purposes and plans for redemptive history find their final consummation. And so then Paul takes that, understanding it in that context, and go back to our text, he picks that up in verse 10, and he quotes that. And he takes these words penned by Isaiah, and he brings them into focus, showing that through Christ's exaltation, the right to worship and honor and glory that belong to God as Father, that also applies to the Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus had always been worthy of worship, even before his resurrection and ascension, but now Paul says that testimony is inescapable. As Romans 1 says in the very beginning verses, he said that the Son of God was declared to be the Son of God with power. Why? How? By the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ seals Him as the one whom will receive every knee. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess. And so we've come full circle in the text. From heaven to earth, back to heaven again. Christ is now declared to be the Lord of heaven and earth. That's the picture here. He is bowing the knee. That's the picture is an idiomatic way of showing honor, respect, and worship. He's saying that everyone will recognize the authority of Jesus in the end. In verses 10 and 11, there is no hint in the text at all that all who bow the knee are acknowledging Jesus as Savior. In other words, not all the people that are bowing the knee are believers. He says they will bow, all will bow, every knee. Not simply those who bow the knee to his saving power in their lives, but all will bow the knee to his sovereign authority as Lord, even if they refuse to do so in this life. Paul's purposely casting a wide net over the whole of creation here in these verses. And you look at verse 10, he says, So he says, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. Those in heaven refer to all heavenly beings, angels, demons. Those on earth refer to those who are alive when Christ returns, both believers and unbelievers. And those under the earth probably are referring to those who have already died, whether they died in Christ or outside of Christ. He says they will all. Bow the knee to Jesus in the end. Not only will they bow the knee, Paul says they will, by their tongues, they will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is who he is. Not only will they pay homage to Jesus, but in doing so, they'll also openly acknowledge and proclaim his sovereign lordship. For Paul, this confession. Jesus is Lord. This confession is the line in the sand between believer and unbeliever. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The one who's truly born again, isn't the one who pays lip service to Jesus as Savior, but the one who submits their life to him as Lord. I think it's interesting in Romans 9, uh, 10 verse 9 that that confession is linked with conviction about what? Christ's resurrection. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's exactly the point Paul is making. Because that is true, we can trust him. We can believe upon him. And I just want to stop here and ask you, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you confessed with your heart, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? And I don't mean have you done through the motions to say out loud Jesus is Lord, but have you, through a spirit of humble brokenness, have you come to the end of yourself and recognized the depths of your sin and cried out to Jesus in simple childlike trust? Have you thrown yourself on him? Have you, are you depending on him and him alone for your salvation? Because baked into that plea for forgiveness is an acknowledgement, not that Jesus is the only Savior, but that he is Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth. If you haven't done that, this morning would be the time Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. Come to Christ, bow the knee to him, trust him, take his yoke upon you. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Not that the Christian life is easy, but that under Christ, it's like it's easy because of his empowering grace. But you need to understand that if you ultimately and finally reject his gracious invitation now, There is a day coming when your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you will do so with everlasting remorse and no second chance. Don't roll the dice. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. We said verses 10 to 11 are Christ's consummation. It looks ahead to the future when all God's purposes and plans for human history are brought to their full and final end. So it's no wonder that Paul tells us yet again why all these things unfold the way they do in verse 11. He does this, he bows, everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the reason, to the glory of God the Father. This is the reason God does everything he does. It is for his glory and for his greatness God the Father highly exalts the Son so that every created being will acknowledge in the end that he is Lord and it all reverberates out to the glory of God. This passage is so profound in all that it teaches. It's, not, it's no surprise that theological writers get lost in here because there's just so much in this text. But we cannot forget why Paul's put it here. First, Paul wants you and I to fix our eyes exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is front and center. Christ's example is the hand that winds the mainspring of selfless humility and unity in the body of Christ. We cannot walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we have the same mind, maintain the same love, are united in the same spirit, intent on one purpose. This is what he has talked about already in the preceding verses. What better north star to sail by than the one who exemplifies selfless humility like the Lord Jesus Christ? The reality is that our Christian life finds its central focus on him. You know, back in chapter 1, verse 21, it says, um, Paul says, For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Here we see that spelled out in vivid detail. All that Jesus is, all that Jesus has done, testify that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and worthy of our worship, our devotion, and our obedience. Secondly, not only does Paul want you and I to fix our eyes on Christ and Christ alone, but he wants Christ, we see that Christ is the exalted Lord, but he has gone before us. So we need to understand that as well. He has gone before us. His vindication, his exaltation, which follows from his humiliation, becomes essentially a paradigm that we also can follow. If you suffer for Christ now, if you humble yourself now, if you walk worthy of Christ now, you will at his coming be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory. His resurrection glory. That's what we see in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, "...our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the same standard or the same glorified state as the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. If you suffer now, you will be glorified with Him." 1 Peter 5.6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Here's the reason. That he may exalt you at the proper time. Just as muscles can't be built up until they're first broken down, so you and I cannot be exalted until we are first humbled. And so when we follow the biblical pattern, we can cling confidently to the biblical hope. There's a hymn we sing at Christmas time that asks this question in the final verse it says who is he who from his throne rules through all the worlds alone and the answer repeated again and again by way of the chorus points us to Christ's coronation and his consummation of all things that we see laid out in these verses it says this tis the lord o wondrous story tis the lord the king of glory At his feet, we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him Lord of all. May we do that this morning. Lord, we thank you for your humiliation, your condescension, your humiliation, and your exaltation. We could not possibly get to you on our own, Lord. We so desperately need you to cleanse us, to wash us, and to empower us, even as believers, to live faithfully for you day by day. Or we pray that if there's any in our midst this morning who have not bowed the knee to Christ, have not confessed with their mouth Jesus as Lord, and believed in their heart that God has raised them from the dead, or may today be the day that you draw hearts to you. Even from where they sit, Lord, they can cry out to you in the quietness of their heart and confess those things and acknowledge and. And there can be a change of mind so complete that it results in a change of direction of life, that affected by your powerful Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in humility as the church, that we would put have this attitude in ourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.